Good afternoon and welcome to another UK Column interview. Although today's not so much of an interview, it's a question and it's a debate and a discussion into what did Pfizer know? Many of you will have seen our recent interview with Dr. Naomi Wolf, uh, CEO of The Daily Clout. But today I'm going to be joined with our wonderful friend, Cheryl Granger, to find out what did Pfizer know? What do the documents reveal? And as many of you will remember, Cheryl has been on UK Column many times before and has published two articles and all the links can be found beneath this interview. And many more will remember Cheryl's bravado at the MHRA board meeting when she confronted the whole board and Stephen Lightfoot with some very uncomfortable questions. So we are incredibly grateful to Cheryl, who's been following Dr. Naomi Wolf's work and the work of her researchers right from the get-go. So with that, Cheryl, welcome again and please talk to us about what did Pfizer know and how did you come to hear about Dr. Naomi's Dr. Naomi Wolf's work and what is it showing to you? Because no one knows more than you do, it would seem. Uh, thanks, Debbie. Uh, a lovely introduction as normal. Um, I basically um, found out about um, the Air and Siri um, freedom of information uh, situation uh, by listening to the Highwire um, because ICANN um, uh, is the organisation they run to support the legal challenges. Um, so to start off with, it was something like September uh, 21, um, there was a, a group of scientists that actually sent a freedom of information into the uh, FDA to get the Pfizer COVID vaccine documentation that they'd used for application to license um, to get that released. And the FDA actually agreed to it. They said that they could have the information, but they said that it was going to be released over 55 years initially. And that's where Aaron Siri's lawsuit started to come in. So he was there to expedite the thing. He was there to try and get that information as quickly as uh, they possibly could. Um, and we're talking about 451,000 pages, 55,000 documents um, were going to be um, released every month so that they could um, see everything that was presented. I mean, to just put it all in context, before digitalization, all this sort of information for license was taken in a lorry to the um, FDA or the MHRA or wherever the regulatory body was, um, because there was so much stuff to look through. And that just shows the mammoth task the regulators should have of reading through it all. Um, anyway, he went to court and um, they were then saying from the FDA they wanted 75 years. Um, Aaron worked out how long it would take for um, a person to read through so many pages and it all got a bit silly, but eventually they, they worked out um, that they got about eight, nine months to release the information. Um, and that's when uh, Naomi Wolf um, came in because she had a, a, a digital company um, she actually had worked um, at the White House for the Democrats. Um, Steve Bannon, of course, had worked for um, uh, Trump. And so it was through Steve Bannon's war room and Naomi Wall's Daily Cloud that they actually announced that they wanted some help. They wanted researchers. They wanted people who had an ability to analyse all this information. Um, and they used it through their platforms to get people. And that's two people from both sides of the fence working together for the same end. 
Um, and they got a global group of 3,500 researchers come forward and volunteer. They're very enthusiastic people. And the more they've got into this, the more determined they are to get to the bottom of what the information is telling them. Uh, they also have 250 solicitors working with them as well, because obviously there could be legal cases that come out of this. Um, and the whole thing, you can imagine, organising that number of people <laughs> is quite a, a big task. They got Amy Kelly, who was a, an extraordinary uh, project manager that I've spoken to. Um, she uh, is became the Daily Clout uh, COO, and she actually um, organised these researchers into appropriate groups and got them working on the information as it started to come through. So that's how the whole thing uh, happened, that we ended up with 74 reports that we can look at so far uh, on the information. Um, 50 reports have been published uh, in a book that you can get on Amazon, um, and all of them can be seen on dailycloud.io, which is Naomi's uh, website, as she said. Can I just jump in very quickly there? Because um, I think I just want to make it plain to our audience. How many pages were released by the FDA because I think this puts it into context. This wasn't just a little A4 ring binder of data, was it? How much information, bearing in mind that we were expecting the MHRA, the FDA to have read all of this data before the rollout, what volume of paperwork are we talking about here? About originally, it was 451,000 pages. Okay, so that is the quantity of information. Um, that had to be waged through, that is normally waded through by the regulators so that they can find out if there's anything wrong. And it's through that information they usually go back and keep asking questions. Give me some more on this. Can you tell me more about that? That sort of thing to get to the bottom of it and to make sure that everything is safe and effective. Um, so it's a heck of a lot of pages. Um, but what they've also done in May 23, so a few months ago, Aaron Siri went back to court to get more data. And in the States, obviously, you've got 50 legal systems to, to have a go at. He was in Texas. He went back to the same um, system. And because he'd asked for this sort of information before, he was given the same judge that had actually um, given him the um, release of the document, which was, you'd say, quite fortunate. Um, because the FDA was then ordered to produce the documents it relied on to release the Moderna's um, COVID vaccine and also the rest of the Pfizer um, vaccine information um, as they released it to 12 to 15-year-olds. And that had to be produced, according to this same judge, at 180,000 pages per month. Um, the FDA responded because they wanted 20, uh, I think it was 23 and a half years to produce it. Um, and it's 4.8 million pages this time because Moderna is an, a, an enormous number of millions of pages. They don't know whether some of it is duplicated, but obviously until they get it, they won't know. Um, and as I say, all these 3,500 researchers are very keen to um, start looking at the information when it starts coming through. Um, and in this second lawsuit, it was done on behalf of the original group, but also on behalf of the parents of uh, Maddie Degarry. I don't know whether you remember her. She was the young girl, um, I think she was about 12 at the time, who was very enthusiastic about volunteering to be in this um, vaccine clinical trial for young children. Um, and at the end of the day, she got horrendous um, injuries. 
Um, so this has been done to get that information, and we're now going to see what Moderna's information say, as well as the Pfizer information. Um, and I'm very interested in that because we know that Moderna has three and a bit times the uh, quantity of mRNA present compared with the Pfizer uh, vaccine. Um, and that is, will be interesting to see what their information shows. And we know too, don't we, um, Cheryl, because I know you've mentioned it to me, because you're trying to get this same data from AstraZeneca um, through yes. a similar method aren't you and you've been you've been literally obfuscated and nobody's come up with any data as yet but you're still diligently trying to get the data and I know you you mentioned and it's important to know in 2005 and I'm going to read this from your notes because I think it's important people know it's appropriate to note that in 2005 the House of Commons Health Committee expressed concerns on pharma funding for the MHRA. MHRA was inadequate to scrutinise licensing data and post-marketing surveillance. Greater transparency is needed with better public access to materials considered by the MHRA prior to licensing. And, you know, I have to, I have to say that with millions of pages from Moderna and, and hundreds of thousands of pages from Pfizer and more information coming all of the time, in your estimation, I mean, you know, Cheryl, you are a, 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 tr a trainer, you're a consultant trainer for the pharmaceutical industry. You read a lot of documents. I mean, in your estimation, how long would it take? It would take years, surely, to read through millions of pages of data like that. Well, it depends how many people you've got in the first place, doesn't it? Um, so we know that the FDA took on a lot more people um, at the time that these clinical trials were supposedly being read through. but we. Um, we also know that the MHRA was down on its staff numbers. Um, so certainly both organisations didn't have the appropriate number of people to deal with this information right at the very start. Um, it's going to take a long time. We've now, I mean, obviously with what's been set up to handle the Pfizer data, the system's already running. We've got all these researchers there ready to go. So it's not as if we're starting from scratch and they, they're getting more expert at doing what they're doing, presumably, and working together in a team to hopefully speed things up a bit. But it will take time. Um, they, basically, the FDA must produce all those extra documents, the Moderna ones and the 12 to 15-year-old um, Pfizer documents. Um, they've got to do um, the production by mid-2025. So it will gradually come in and then be completed, supposedly, by mid 25 but in the meantime it can be worked on um which is the same with um the pfizer uh, data that they've had at the moment but it all takes time so they started getting it about march 22 i think so they've just had it or start had it streaming in for over a year uh, but they've still got 74 reports already and this it's brought out some um key information um so, you know, how much information do you need? Do you need every bit of information? Um, I'm sure they'll try and get that. Um, but at the moment, there's another lawsuit that has been uh, started by George Smith um, to, on behalf of um, Daily Clout and Naomi Wolf to sue Pfizer for what they've done to people. That's how it's been phrased. Um, 
The interesting thing is, from what you've just read about the House of Commons Health Committee, is that the judge in um, this latest um, trial that Aaron Syria did in May uh, to get this extra information, he stated, and I've got a quote, that it's democracy dies behind closed doors. So fortunately, they got a judge that wanted to open those doors uh, in a democratically sensible way to actually allow this information out. Um, and that's what should be happening in the UK, because obviously um, the health committees have said that in the past. Um, I pinched what Aaron Siri was doing. I copied him because it seemed to be working. And I got a group of people to actually uh, sign the document, which was hard. And I got um, a, a legal um, board to actually um, do the um, heading and do the letter so that it had a, a legal input into it. Uh, which made it look a lot more official than a lot of freedom of information that are sent in. And um, to start off with, they warned me it was too much information that I'd asked for. And then after that, uh, we've gone back and we've asked them to state categorically that they're rejecting it, which took time. And then I've gone back and I've asked for an internal review, which is what the um, ICO ask you to do before they can look at it. Um, but we're on a different footing because if you remember in the States, they were they, they said that they would give them the information. They were just going to take a long time to get it out um, so that most people in this um, alive now would be dead by the time we'd actually get the information. So they just wanted to expedite it. But we are still trying to get the information on AstraZeneca um, so that if we have the Pfizer, which they've got, if we have the Moderna, which they're getting, then with the AstraZeneca, We've kind of got most of the bases covered for now. Um, so I'm, I'm keeping going with it and we will see what happens. And we're so grateful to you. And I think it's, it's, it's so important to know that, you know, for people watching, you know, there are many people, including Cheryl, that are working incredibly hard in the background to get this data following a similar model. But as you can see in the UK, it's a different system. Let's just go back to Pfizer now, Cheryl, and let's bring out some of the what was what was Dr. Wolf actually saying? What went on in those early, in inverted commas, rushed, I think, clinical trials? What what has appeared in the papers? Because I know that we've got data on children. Can you highlight for us some of the the really important points that Dr. Wolf was was intimating that she was seeing in the Pfizer documents? She was talking about um, they were supposed to show that the vaccine stopped you getting COVID, um, but they knew very early on and they actually stated that it was a failure of efficacy and vaccine failure as well that they were seeing. So it wasn't working, uh, but they kept going on. Um, and, of course, the third most common side effect that's been reported is COVID itself, uh, which we've seen you know, in this country and other countries, that many of the people who are still getting COVID are the vaccinated. Can I just say, Cheryl, there, can we, because there's a big difference, and you're the expert, there's a big difference in efficacy and effectiveness. So what does efficacy actually mean? Is how successful it is in doing what it's supposed to do. We've seen from the latest reports, it would appear that something exists called negative efficacy. Is that right? Yeah, 
And that basically is when you give a, a treatment that's supposed to be efficacious to do something, um, it's actually um, you have more chance. Uh, well, let's go back to having COVID. So if you take a vaccine to stop you getting COVID, if you're in negative efficacy, there's more chance of you getting COVID if you take the vaccination. Okay, so it's not stopping you getting it. It's actually giving you more chance of getting it. And and you've just said, so let's just repeat this. Let's just sink in for people. The third most common serious adverse reaction was COVID. Am I hearing that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things that really upset me at the beginning, because if you go to the ABPI, the code of practice that pharmaceutical industry in the UK is supposed to operate by, you're not supposed to use a relative risk ratio to actually describe the effectiveness of your treatment. Uh, you're, you can use absolute risk ratio on its own. And the Pfizer um, relative risk ratio was about 0.95, uh, sorry, 95%. But with the absolute risk ratio, it went down to 0.84%. So obviously, they didn't want to use the absolute risk ratio. They wanted to use the relative risk ratio because it sounded better. And everybody would assume that it's a very effective treatment. We were told from the start um, that the um, Pfizer vaccine was 100% effective. Then it went to 95. Then it went to 80. Then it went down. And we saw there's a film somewhere on the internet of all these people telling us as we go through time about it going down and down and down. And eventually it went below zero. And that's when you get into negative effectiveness. So there's more chance of getting COVID if you take the vaccine. Um, and they actually were showing that in the data. Quite shocking. And and also, what else the data has shown is, is something that we were talking about right from the very beginning. A lot of people have been talking about, actually, is that this isn't, we'll talk about the fact that this isn't a traditional vaccine a little bit later on, because clearly it's not. Um, but a traditional vaccine would go in the arm and it would stay in the deltoid, wouldn't it? But this yeah. one, it would appear from the Pfizer documents that it didn't stay in the deltoid at all. And we have evidence of that in the Pfizer documents? They actually didn't do um, studies to show kind of how it left the body. So excretion studies weren't done. Um, and we still don't know how long it stays in the body. Um, but there was evidence that was originally picked up, I think, in Japan, and we had to get a translation to be able to work out that it went to most organs of the body um, because it was found within uh, 48 hours um, to be in a lot of um, places that we were told it wouldn't go to because, as you say, um, we were told it would stay in your arm. Um, so um, the other thing was by November... Between November 20 and February 21, so that's three months, um, we basically had uh, 43,000 adverse events reported to Pfizer and we had uh, 1,225 deaths. And many of those happened, this is very important, within the first 48 hours after taking the vaccination. Okay, So they were aware that were deaths. And let me point out that with other vaccines in the past that have been taken off the market, like Pandemrix um, for swine flu, at the end of the day, there was never allowed to be more than 50 deaths reported before it was taken off the market. 
I think that's very sobering, isn't it? Because if also if we look at the MHRA's yellow card system, you know, that was set up after thalidomide. We had 500 cases of thalidomide and the drug was withdrawn um, at the end of the data publishing, I think, from the MHRA in the UK. Uh, we had over 500,000 serious adverse reactions with over 2,000 deaths. Um, and Dame June Rain admitting that the MHRA was expecting 100,000 serious adverse reactions. For me personally, and I'm sure for you, one death is too many. One serious adverse reaction is too many. And yet we're continuing, continuing to roll this out and more. What else did the Pfizer documents reveal, Cheryl? Don't forget, they took on in the FDA uh, 2,400 full-time people to deal with this big surge in adverse reactions and reports that were coming in. We didn't do that with the MHRA. Um, it, you know, everybody that seems to have lost a loved one or had a major side effect doesn't seem to have been contacted by them from the reports that we get back. I'd like to just add there too that at all the board meetings that I've been to at the MHRA, they have always spoken about shut staff shortages, not being able to recruit, and having to promote um, more junior staff into senior positions that they weren't necessarily trained for. And I do remember at one MHRA board meeting, I think Dr. Alison Cave revealed that 40 scientists had been appointed to look at the serious adverse reactions. Clearly, 40 scientists is nowhere near enough. And clearly, their findings weren't being fed back to those that were injured. It was just data that was being collected and moved on. So we know that there's been a shortage of staff at the MHRA for a very long time. So I think that's very significant at how many extra personnel the FDA had to bring in, and yet 40 in the UK for the MHRA. And don't forget, um, they mentioned at one of the board meetings about AI. So they were going to use AI and they got a million pound budget to actually start analysing the yellow card. And where did that go? Who did that? <laughs> what happened? Um, and all the way through, they keep saying safe and effective. So it's as if they're not acknowledging that there's any adverse events. Okay, because the other thing that the code of practice for the industry states, the word that you can't use on any medication is the word safe. Because no drug is is safe. Um, you know, aspirin um, has been reported to give up to 10 percent of people a um, gut bleed. Um, and that's why we have enteric coated aspirin and all the rest of it. They do things to try and get around the side effects that they might see. But, you know, you can't use this word safe. Um, so it, it get very worrying. Um, the other thing that um, Naomi reported was that um, the number one um, side effect, adverse reaction reported, was joint pain. Um, and they're saying that that shows that it's crossing membranes and that people are seeing inflammatory um, uh, conditions. Um, and she linked it in to what Ed Dowd's doing in terms of numbers of people who are not only dying he's looking at sudden adult death but he's also looking at the disabilities and the disability level in the states which something like rheumatoid arthritis and um, these joint pain illnesses could lay you off work 
Um, so their registrations for disabilities has gone through the roof. I think they've got over um, an extra three million people who are now registered. Um, so on she went and she talked about the lipid nanoparticles, which I know is a favourite of, of yours, Debbie. Um, basically, um, the effects of lipid nanoparticles have been known for over 10 years. So we know that there are problems. And they knew that it degraded the myelin sheath, which is the protective sheath around um, your uh, nerves, uh, around your neurons. Um, so obviously, if that sheath is affected, neurological conduction is affected and you start getting neurological conditions like multiple uh, sclerosis, etc. Um, the other thing she mentioned was about this. Do you remember when it all came out and uh, the vaccine started being administered they talked about the temperature so they had to be kept at cold temperatures um, and they're suggesting that um, fat would coalesce so these lipid nanoparticles fats would actually coalesce at room temperature and obviously body temperature is higher than that um, and what the result of that is is you get clumping and then you get these long rubbery type clots which people have probably seen on videos um, and obviously there are links then into thrombocytopenia, myocarditis and pericarditis, etc. So all very worrying things to do with this um, coating around the um, mRNA that is there to kid the cell membrane and get it into the cell um, because it's a fat. Just on a very simple note, this is the way I, I, I often think in pictures and I talk in pictures. So when we talk about lipid nanoparticles, um, I always say to people, the mRNA is the code. It's the code book. That's the instructions. But the instructions, if it was a letter, if you imagine the mRNA was a letter, the letter's got the instructions on it, but the letter needs an envelope because you need to be able to address it, to be able to send it, to be able to deliver it to the recipient. So the mRNA is the piece of paper that you've written the code on. And then the envelope that you put it on is the lipid nanoparticle, because the mRNA isn't able to get anywhere without an envelope covering it. Once it's covered by that envelope, it can then be sent in a solution, in a syringe, and delivered into your body. So the, the, the existence of these lipid nanoparticles are extremely important. And I know that Dr. Naomi Wolf has done a lot of work with regards to, she calls them LNP. So if you read her documents and you see LNP and you think, what's that? It, it actually means lipid nanoparticles. I believe, and I'm not 100% certain, and I'm sure our audience will correct me, I think hydrogel is classified as a liquid nanoparticle. Um, and I'm very interested to see that, you know, the joint pain and rheumatoid problems we were seeing very early on in the yellow card data. But as well as that, and I know something else that um, Dr. Wolf has been focusing on is women's health and how the revelations within the documents seem to point towards um, a lot of serious adverse reactions that affect fertility, that affect babies, that affect children, that are affecting breastfeeding, pregnant women. Um, talk to us a bit about what the documents appear to show with regards to women, Cheryl. 
they listed more than 20 menstrual irregularities um, and um, these menstrual problems started being seen in 2021 and it seems to be that um, now we've got fertility problems through 22, 23. So the whole thing will be linked. Um, and it's saying that in, in Europe, we've got a reduction of between 30 and 30% in birth rate. Um, that means that really we've got about a million babies missing in the whole of Europe that haven't been uh, born because of um, fertility problems. So it's a catastrophic change to uh, the birth rate. Um, and these um, menstrual problems have been anything from um, basically uh, bleeding irregularities, uh, bleeding all the time, um, very lot of pain um, and discomfort, and it goes through to actually hemorrhaging. Um, and actually this has been discussed in chat rooms where people just have to, or women have to, um, talk to other people who are suffering from the same thing. Um, and it goes through to uh, anemia. Anemia is something that um, will result from obviously losing too much blood. Um, so what um, the conclusion seems to be from the data is that the uh, women's uh, reproductive systems have been disabled, they're not functioning properly, and this has been on a grand scale. So it's been harmful to the uh, initial um, form fetus and the babies that are then born, um, and it's come um, in by the amniotic and placenta membranes because these um, injected substances go through uh, the body's membranes. Um, they had a report in the data about two spontaneously aborted babies and they labelled them that they died because of transplant uh, uh, placental exposure, transplantcental exposure, and they listed that. So they knew it was getting through the placenta. Um, James Thorpe, who's a, a famous American um, gynaecologist, he reports that the placentas that he's seen are covered in calcifications, which means that nutrients are stopped getting through to the um, carried um, fetus, and that um, the placentas are on average about two inches smaller in diameter. Uh, the whole thing has been affected uh, in vaccinated mums. Um, there's also reports of neonates who've got these air pockets that develop in the chest wall and they go home and within a day they're back in ICU and quite a few um, have major problems um, because of that. Um, so there's lots of effects on women and the reproductive system and then the uh, infants that uh, are born um, and some don't even get born, they become aborted. Um, so it's saying that in terms of the whole uh, documentation, the side effects that are being reported, 72% uh, of them are in women. So it's like it's a, a, a target to the um, female reproductive system. Um, having said that, um, you could see it as being an assault on humanity, children and masculinity itself, because there's also um, evidence that there's um, the... Um, degradation of the Leydig and Sertoli cells. Now, they're the ones that are involved in the development of, of sperm. Um, and therefore, again, that's a double whammy, isn't it? Because that would um, lead to infer infertility as well. Um, so 
yeah, lots of newborns being born that are getting sick. They've got fever and convulsions and some are experiencing death. Um, and we know that the uh, PEG, which is the lipid nanoparticle that's uh, basically antifreeze, uh, that goes into breast milk. Um, and I don't know about the link, but uh, Naomi mentioned that 86% of mums in the US are now not breastfeeding. And that affects that has effects on the next generation when it's in such a high number. PEG um, is polyethylene glycol, and that is a, a lipid nanoparticle, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. There are four um, uh, lipids that are uh, making up the lipid nanoparticle that makes the shell around the uh, mRNA. And two of those are cationic and they are toxic. Cheryl, can I just ask you, because it is confusing these days, we call these vaccines. And in my day, a vaccine was completely different to what we're being thrown today. What was a traditional vaccine? Um, try to explain to us where, where we're going wrong here, because there seems to be two different things going on here. What was it we, we, we used to have? We used to have um, some of the organism that was responsible for an infection. So it would be a um, live attenuated, which is weakened. That means it's something has happened to it to, to mean that it can't cause infection in you, but it's still something that would um, set up a, an antigen antibody reaction. Um, or it might be the uh, whole dead organism. Um, so it was something that was put into the body that would generate um, antibodies to that particular um, infective uh, allergen that was being um, uh, given through the needle to you. Um, and that led to the antibody formation and then the T cells got involved, et cetera, et cetera, so that you were ready for when you uh, came across that particular bug, that particular infection again. Um, these um, new um, vaccines, as the keen seem to be being called, um, are different because they are genetic codes. So your DNA is copied by uh, RNA in the body and that goes out the nucleus and produces the protein that that code is for. So what they're doing is they've taken um, some RNA component, um, which they've used spike protein, um, so it's a code for the spike protein in these COVID-19 vaccines. Um, and uh, what they're trying to do is get your body to produce spike proteins, supposedly, so that you will make antibodies to them um, and have an immune reaction to them. But what they have done is to do that, they've got to send the mRNA into the cell because um, a virus can't produce its own um, proteins. It has to use your body's proteins, your cell proteins, in order to, for it to do that. So it goes in and uses your amino acids. Um, the thing is, there's no switch off. So it's a genetically engineering product. It's going in, instead of giving you spike protein, it's giving you the code for the spike protein. And that's the thing yeah, that's very and Since when did we ever take a vaccine? to protect the NHS or to protect your mum or your colleagues at work. You know, traditionally, if you were going on holiday, you might take a vaccine 
to protect yourself. <laughs> it's not to protect the rest of the plane or the people you're in the hotel with. So clearly, this is not a vaccine. No, I mean, you, you used to, if you went somewhere um, a long way away where the yellow fever was um, basically killed 50% of people, you had to have a vaccine to protect you when you went there. You weren't doing it to protect anybody else. I'm going to ask you a, a, a really, because I know that Dr. Wolf has always said um, that this is not a vaccine. And clearly, it doesn't appear to be a vaccine to me. Dr. Naomi Wolf goes as far as to say that she believes that this is a bioweapon. What are your thoughts on that? Because it's, you know, that's a big statement to make. What are your, what are your thoughts and what are your findings? Well, bio means life, and it's a weapon that is affecting life, and therefore it is. It hasn't gone through um, most of the things, uh, the tests that a, a genetic product would have to go through. Um, there's been major failings in that regard, um, and therefore um, it's considered as a vaccine which doesn't have to go through the same sort of testing. Um, but they had the information, it seems, within the documentation that suggests that it's it's basically um, a war <laughs> that's being waged um, that is there to disable, kill and sterilise the West, as Naomi Wolf said. Um, I believe that it is a bioweapon. I'm going to agree with you, um, but I want to address an elephant in the room uh, because as you've said, these are 70 documents. These are only 70 reports that we've received so far from Dr. Wolf's um, volunteer army of researchers. There's far more to come. But let's talk shedding because there is some evidence now that supports shedding. And by shedding, what we are saying is that there is um, a risk that vaccinated people may be shedding spike proteins that would be affecting unvaccinated people. What evidence is, is seems to be appearing from the research that Dr. Wolf's team are finding with regards to shedding? Yeah, what they did um, in the um, Pfizer study um, was they were very keen that people um, didn't uh, become pregnant while they were taking part in the clinical trial. Um, and um, this is basically exposure during pregnancy, EDP. Um, and they basically um, are suggesting that everybody in the trial, if they were sexually active, was to use two forms of contraceptive. That's how worried they were. Um, so they um, basically, um, I believe from the information that's shown, are showing that um, the, there's transfer through body fluids. Um, and therefore, if you have a vaccinated person with an unvaccinated person, what is being transferred through those body fluids? Um, and perhaps a consideration should be what happens with a um, vaccinated parent and an unvaccinated child. Um, we haven't got um, definite um, conclusive evidence from what I can gather, um, but there are patterns that are showing up. Um, we know that spike protein is present in urine if you have COVID infection um, and that 
um, it seems plausible, therefore, that um, it could be present in bodily fluids due to dissemination through the body um, and it trying to be cleared out after vaccination. So it could be as a result of vaccination that you see it in urine as well. Um, we also know that um, vaccinated um, people can pass um, vaccine-induced antibodies uh, to unvaccinated people. So there's lots of stories of reports um, and some uh, clinical trial work to show that that is what is actually uh, happening. Um, Dr McCulloch has said um, quite a lot on this. Um, and as you know, he always backs things up by lots of quoted um, studies, clinical trials. Um, so he says in his own experience, um, when he's done follow-up MRIs on his patients, um, he says that only 20% have resolved abnormalities over a six-month period. Um, and in earlier cases that happened 20, uh, two years before, um, then they're still showing evidence of spike protein. Um, and he's saying that um, basically we've no idea how or when the code, the mRNA code, would actually be got rid of from the body. Um, and we don't know. Um, we know that the lipid nanoparticles um, don't seem to be able to get out of the body. Um, but I, I believe that there's a, a, a suggestion that it's moving uh, through to other people through um, uh, basically um, bodily fluids. Um, it's very difficult to give you concrete evidence on that, but that's something that might come out more as time goes on. Well, I think until we've got the evidence to dismiss it, then it's still quite obviously on the table, like the serious adverse reactions. Until there is an investigation to eliminate the vaccine, um, we have to assume that this could be and probably is the cause. I'd like to point out is a lot of these medics that have gone alone and been criticised and been on the side of the people who have had major reactions because they've been trying to treat them, they're all coming up with different protocols that can be tried to try and get rid of spike protein um, and to try and help these people. So the people that have been vilified by the whole system are the ones that are now helping the injured. Um, and um, I think that um, people who have been injured, um, there are treatments that they can um, try um, that these people have put together in a protocol. Um, but um, I mean, you know, I went to the Better Way conference and Pierre Corrie was there and he was saying every patient's different. That's the problem with this because it depends where the vaccination has ended up in their body. Um, so you have to treat people on an individual basis. But what they're talking about is a product called natakinase, which is based on a Japanese food and that stops clotting. Um, but is a natural um, substance, and that's one that seems to be promoted by a lot of people at the moment. So there are things that people can try as a an upside to this. The people who've been vilified are the ones that are helping, um, and I think they shouldn't be forgotten. And I think it's very important to remember too that it is very personal. Everybody is suffering from different symptoms at different times. Some people only now are starting to join the dots and realise that 
what they're suffering with could be attributed to the vaccine that they had two years ago. Um, but Cheryl, you've been following very closely all of the reports that have been coming out and you brought my attention to Dr. Chris Fellows, um, Professor of Radiology, who's recently been interviewed by Dr. Naomi Wolf. And his findings I find particularly worrying um, because we're talking almost two different products, aren't we? Uh, with regards to the Pfizer, it would appear that it would appear that Pfizer have produced two different solutions, uh, one that seems to have been rolled out in the USA and one that seems to have been targeted for us and for Western Europe. Can you tell us a bit more about what you've heard about this? Yeah, I mean, we're basically saying that um, it's it, Pfizer in their uh, documentation have shown that they changed the manufacturing process in the middle of the clinical trial. Um, so they actually um, produced um, a process two product, as they called it, um, which used a genetically modified um, gut bacteria, E. coli, and that generated the DNA. And from that uh, DNA plasmids, and they get broken down so that they can release the mRNA that is used in the vaccine. Um, and it was the EMA that noticed this. Um, and they allowed 250 um, people to be dosed in the trial. Um, and if I can go back a bit, um, one of the other things that um, they found out, one of the major things that's wrong with these clinical trials is that they unblinded the placebo control group, which I think a lot of people know about. Um, but what they did, they had 22,000 people who received saline. Um, and at the end of the trial, at their final follow-up, they actually asked them, told them, gave them vaccination. So that meant that your placebo group had gone, and that means that your uh, long-term data won't be there because you've nothing to compare the vaccinated with. Everybody becomes vaccinated. My mouth's wide open there. Can I just can we just rewind on that a little bit because we're talking about let's what. Let's start off with what a blind trial is and what a double blind trial is. So I'll, I'll, those are my first two questions to you. But just I just want to reiterate. So we're talking about a control group that was given a placebo of saline. So that's the control group, right? And they stay as mm -hmm. the control group. But they were suddenly given the vaccine afterwards, which means that we lose the whole control group. Is that, is that yeah. right? I mean, you apply for a clinical trial license. You've got a clinical trial protocol. Everything's supposed to be done according to how it's been decided to be run right at the beginning. Okay. One of the best ways of, of doing a trial is a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So that's your double-blind is both your um, patient and your doctor not knowing what's being given. So they can't influence what they're saying to you um, and the results. Um, and um, the um, placebo bit is to look at the um, uh, vaccination itself to see how that compares with nothing, uh, how that compares with giving a person just salt, <laughs> salt water. Um, so at the end of the day, 
um, what they did is they um, asked or told or gave everybody the vaccination because, of course, it was seen that this infection was so bad. Why wouldn't you ask people to protect them to have the vaccination? Um, so that's what they did. They also said that the administrators found that it was easy to recognise which treatment they were given, which kind of negates the double blind bit. Um, because it was obvious from the vials which was the saline and which was the actual um, COVID vaccine. Um, so the whole thing seems to be um, badly done. Um, so Chris Fellows uh, reports on this. So he led Team 3 and he's actually a professor of radiology who practised for 40 odd years in the States. Um, he's a Brit and he seems to be now back in, in Britain and uh, Naomi was interviewing him about this particular report. Um, and um, it basically, first of all, showed about the unblinding. Um, it also showed about the number of people who got COVID. This is coming on to the negative effectiveness again. The number of people who got COVID in the vaccine arm uh, compared with the unvaccinated. Um, so what they did, they waited for people to get COVID symptoms. And if you show COVID symptoms, they give you a test and decide um, that you've got COVID. Um, this part of the uh, trial was based on very few people. Um, so they stated that there were only eight people in the vaccinated group who got COVID and there were 162 in the unvaccinated group uh, that got COVID. So that's different from each other. Yeah, more chance of not getting it if you actually take the vaccination is what he was trying to say. But through sieving through all the data, and it wasn't obvious at the beginning because they've released each participant's information over a period of time. You don't get a, a wallet just for that one person and then the next person. They've released bits of it for each person. So you can imagine how difficult that is to, to keep track of. Um, but they ended up with 200 and more. They think it's going to be more because they've only found 200 at the moment. 200 or more people who got symptoms in the vaccinated group. Um, and they basically didn't test them. They got rid of them. They excluded them from the trial so that they could leave it just at eight. But of course, if it's 200 and more that they've identified at the moment, you're now saying that those who got COVID, it was at least 208 in the vaccinated group who got COVID against 162 in the unvaccinated group that got COVID. Um, they've wangled the results. And they knew that by mid-October 2020, they were in negative efficacy. Um, so they're more likely um, to get infection on vaccination, which is what the results are showing. Um, and obviously to influence this, Pfizer actually went out to Argentina um, to make sure they got a perfect set of uh, data, being that most of the participants that were taking part were Argentinians. Now this is very is interesting that you mention Argentina. I just have to I have to just interrupt you a second then because my ears prick up because if if you remember rightly I on one of our extra editions I did a special on E coli and you've clearly just mentioned GMO engineered E coli and there was an E coli pandemic preparedness exercise done in 2000, I think it was 2017, 2018, in Argentina um, at the G, G20. So my ears are pricking up because here again, I'm seeing, um, or at least I'm, I'm antimicrobial resistance is, is creeping in 
to the conversation and I'm wondering, am I on the right track? Yeah, um, I think it's all linked. And I think that, I mean, you're very good at making the links between things. Um, but uh, yeah, there's um, lots of um, wheels, spokes to this that all come together. Um, the other thing that they mention is that Pfizer actually presented to the advisory committees. So um, basically, the regulatory boards had nothing to do at this time, really, apart from look at clinical trial work um, from the vaccinations, because all clinical trials have been stopped. Sorry, I've got to fly. <laughs> um, so, the fly's trying to get me. Um, so what they did, um, instead of the regulatory agencies looking at the Pfizer data themselves, you know, June Rain sitting in her room for, what was it, seven days and reading through everything? Must be a fast reader. Um, then they subserved it to Pfizer. So Pfizer told the regulatory authorities what the data showed. That was good of them, wasn't it? Um, which is kind of, um, it was described as a bait and switch. That's when the uh, seller creates an appealing but ingenuine offer to sell a product or service. Yeah, We'll sell it for what we want you to know about it, even if it's made up. Because Pfizer gave false information, and that's the propaganda brought to you by Pfizer, is the way it was uh, referred to. So going back to what we originally started on, this manufacturing um, process changing, that we got this process two um, uh, vaccine um, from, if you remember, the genetically modified uh, gut bacteria, the E. coli, um, that they, the EMA had noticed this and they allowed um, 250 uh, doses to be used in the trial. Um, so what did they do? Um, they um, basically went back and gave it to the unblinded placebo group. Um, so they were given that, and then they followed it up, and they know that the process two vaccines is a very different product. Um, they've got at least twice as many um, severe adverse reactions from um, the um, process two vaccines. So it's not pure. It's got many contaminants in it. Um, this free DNA floating about that shouldn't be there. Uh, and this community um, is actually uh, more contaminated uh, than the previous version, uh, than the original vaccine. Um, so they're testing. They're testing different products within one clinical trial, um, which is not allowed. So this is a completely different product. And, and I know that a lot of people are talking about P1 and P2. So just to clarify for anybody that might have missed it or anybody that needs an extra bit of explanation, Cheryl, just explain to us the, the, the Comorati, how does that figure with regards to P1 and P2? Is it the P2 that's Two. the DNA, uh, the, the, the E. coli um, modified solution? Is that the P2? Is that the Comorati? Uh, yes, that's the, the P2, and that's the one that's been uh, rolled out in, in Europe. Um, so it's kind of been targeted. Cheryl, can I ask you, is there, I mean, all of this is just overwhelming in, in information, isn't it? And there's going to be so much more to come. Um, I just want to ask you a little bit about what the papers suggested with regards to babies and children 
um, that have been suffering from myocarditis because this is extremely rare. In my day as a nurse, I never met, thankfully, any child with myocarditis. Um, it was extremely rare, thank goodness. Only now we're seeing so much more young, well, so many more young people with myocarditis, pericarditis. Um, do the do any of the reports or any of the experts have they mentioned this link or if there's a link with what was in the Pfizer documents? Yeah, the, the, there are reports um, that take on um, the information within the studies. I can't remember which number it is now, but people can go and look that up. Um, there's actually um, a, a, a button that you can press to put in any subject that you want within on dailyclout.io um, that links into the Pfizer um, details and will give you to the right uh, take you to the right report that was designed by two Brits apparently um, so they knew by May 2021 um, that there were 35 minors that had an elevated risk of myocarditis so they knew fairly early on um, that they were seeing myocarditis, especially again in younger people, because don't forget COVID was mainly in the elderly. These are risks to fertile women, younger people, babies. It's all going to push it to the younger age groups. Have we seen or have we got any evidence to suggest that there could be any, any teratogenic um, effects of this injection? And by that, I mean congenital abnormalities. Um, that have been appearing in babies and children? Um, I've seen reports of that. Um, I'd have to look up the detail of that, but it's certainly been reported. I think it's I think it's important to say that um, thanks to Dr Naomi Wolf and the Daily Cloud, all of the reports, the 50 reports, um, are on the Daily Cloud for free. Um, as Cheryl's already mentioned, there is a book available on Amazon. I would really recommend everybody purchase it um but those that the reports you can access on the daily clout website one of the biggest messages when i was speaking to dr thomas binder was um he said don't to, to people that had already had the the injections and of course there are going to be many that are watching today that have either had the injection or that no loved ones have got loved ones that are suffering from serious adverse reactions and I think my biggest takeaway from Dr. Thomas Binder's interview, or one of the biggest takeaways, was don't have any more. Um, Cheryl, what's your view on that? I suspect by your face you're probably in agreement with that. Cumulative effects, isn't it? If we don't know how um, the route of excretion, and we don't know how quickly you excrete it, but we know it stays for a long time, the more you put into the system, especially if it's been taken into your cells and influencing what's happening, then um, the, the least you can put in, the better. So don't have any more. Please don't have any more. Um, and the bivalent ones was kind of twice as much. Um, it's, it's dose dependent. And therefore, the more you have, the more problems you will have, uh, probably. It won't happen in everybody. And that's, again, something I've got. The, I'm sorry, I'm being pestered by a fly. Um, I suggest, um, yeah, I mean, I suggest that people refuse. Just to say no, just say no. Sure. And we've got to remember, too, that as we're talking about um, what has come up in the Pfizer documents, these injections are still being rolled out 
you know, here in the UK, in the USA, we had the FDA only a couple of days ago talking about what the next injections were going to be, how many were going to be produced, where they were going to be circulated. So this is an ongoing um, program where we've got new vaccines, nanoparticle vaccines like Skycovion coming in, into the market in the UK. So there's much more that we need to be keeping our eyes on, not just mRNA, but all experimental drugs that are coming through the pipeline. I'm keeping my eye on the clock, Cheryl, because I know how incredibly busy you are. And I'm so grateful that you've managed to follow all of this information and to do all the work trying to get the data from AstraZeneca as well, because you've been so diligent and, and you know these reports so well. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. But as always, I want to, I've got an eye on the clock and I want to give you the last word and to be able to add anything that we may, might have missed or any message that you'd like to put out to anybody that's watching. So on that note, Cheryl, as always, I'm going to hand over to you with grateful thanks for the last word. At the end of the day, I've always believed with all these things that are happening around us that they're thinking of the solutions and then dreaming up the problem and then they promote the problem to try and brainwash us into accepting it. There are very, very few times in history when we've had pandemics. Pandemics don't happen very often. And to plan the one in another few months' time just seems ridiculous. Um, and therefore, and they, te they don't tend to be very severe. If it's something that is severe, it puts you into bed and you don't pass it to somebody else because you might have died beforehand, um, which sounds an awful thing to say. But if it's something that's like a, a flu, you tend to keep going and, and you might pass it on to somebody. So um, don't be worried about um, what they're trying to promote. Um, it's uh, Panda. Pandata is very good um, at this and giving the context of all these um, different uh, infections that we've had over the millennia. Um, I'd, I'd very much suggest that people look at the Naomi uh, Wolf, Chris Fellows, Dr. Chris Fellows um, interview because it sets out the overall um, corruption within the clinical trial. And you can make your own judgment from what is said uh, during that interview. Uh, Chris Fellows is a very uh, knowledgeable person. He's very much involved in clinical trials. He's been doing clinical trials for donkey's years. And he knows how this should be run. And he knows this wasn't run properly. And therefore, um, a very well worth one to watch.